All right. Welcome to the Righteous Remnant podcast. This week, we are going to be covering you know something that's really been on my heart for um, several years now, but I've really been reburdened for it in the past week or so. Um, I've really been fasting and praying for this next season, and I feel like this renewed um, <clears throat> heart burden for a certain type of, of DNA. And you know what I mean by that is I think that there are some essential components of what God wants to do in this next season in the church. All right. Now, as always, when we're talking about foretelling the future, you know, um, my belief is that all of us who listen to God and hear God, we all do that imperfectly. Okay. So I'm not trying to say that I have the exact blueprint, but what I am saying is that um, when my heart gets burdened in such a way like this, um, I do feel like I hear um, part of what the Father is saying. And I do want to emphasize that I just see a part. You know, Scripture says that we all see in part. And that's I think that's really important to know because what the Lord is doing is always bigger than the part that he shows to us. Right, but this is the part that I see and hear um, as pertains to this upcoming generation of the church. And what I feel like the Lord is really doing is is He's building a new wineskin. Um, and you know that term gets thrown around a lot. And I'm going to be honest; I'm not sure that I'm using that term in the exact way that's supposed to. I I did a study on you know biblical wine and wineskins, and um, man, I felt like I was just um, I was just learning about the first bit of something that's a much deeper in scripture that I think there's actually a lot of revelation to the idea of wine and wineskins. And I don't feel like I, I have a full understanding on that at all. Um, but there's the sense in which a wineskin is a carrier for wine. And in this analogy, it's, uh, the wine would be a, a movement, an outpouring of the spirit and the wineskin would be the carriers of that particular wine. And, um, you know, I, there are some elements to this wine. I believe that the Lord wants to raise up leaders that have a certain DNA for what he wants to do in this generation. Okay. Now, to bring some clarity as to moves of God and things like that, I, I do believe God moves in a variety of ways. I think he moves in many different ways. He's moving all over the earth through many, many different people. Um, but what we do see is that there are moves of God that have distinct feels, right? So if you look at um, pretty much every denomination that exists today, I think all of those were birthed out of a move of God. Right. And these moves of God, what they do is they emphasize certain truths and they provide certain graces to propagate these certain truths. So just as an example, um, in the early 90s, when I was, you know, um, you know, junior high and later on in high school, there was a movement called the Vineyard Movement. All right. And um, there's different terms to this. Some call it the Latter Day Movement, the Third Wave Charismatic Movement. Um but there was this emphasis at Vineyard where they were really emphasizing healing, the moves of the spirit, worship, right, and and being genuine. And um, there were some of these emphasis that were very impactful for me as a young believer in that time. And and um, the Vineyard movement um, blew up. There were Vineyard churches being planted everywhere. Um, it became a huge worship movement where 
churches everywhere were singing vineyard songs that were communicating you know, the principles and the revelation of the vineyard movement. And so that's an example of, you know, a wineskin that was carrying a certain wine. And I loved the vineyard movement. I still love the vineyard movement. Um, that was one move. And there have been hundreds of them, you know, throughout history. And I think in every move of God, there's something that we today need to honor and but we need to be careful not to hold so tightly to what God did in the past that we can't recognize what he's doing in our time. Okay. And that's actually one of the things I'm going to talk about more in depth as we go into this. But I feel like I've identified maybe four or five elements of this new wine. And again, to be clear, these are just the elements that I see. And um, I'm not sure the best way to categorize these things. So I'm just going to share my heart and um, and I think as time goes on, it'll become clearer to me what our specific, what exactly specific elements are. But I just want to give kind of what my heart burden has been over the past few years in this. Um, the number one element that I see is the prayer movement or the House of Prayer. Okay, um, you know, if you listen to the story of the International House of Prayer with Mike Bickle and um, um, man, who's that prophet? Bob Jones. Right. And the stories um, of the birth of that movement. I love it. it. They've had such an amazing prophetic history. You can go to um, IHOP's website and I think they have a, the prophetic history of the movement you know, written down there and they tell some of the stories. And those are wonderful. Um, I, I, I feel like this is a movement that is really born of God. Okay. And um, I really appreciate Mike Bickle. Mike, Bir Mike Bickle is definitely one of, you know, um, the heroes of the faith in our generation that I highly respect. And I really love um, who he is and what he brings. But I love that he's not pretentious about it. You know, he's so upfront and clear. Like, he didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> like, the Lord, like, told him to start a 24-7 house of prayer. And so they had a sign, you know, that said 24-7 prayer, you know, but they didn't do that for a long time. And people would ask him, you know, what does that sign mean? He's like, I don't know. <laughs> but the Lord told us to do it, you know. And um, it's just a great story. I highly recommend you check out, you know, some of the materials they have on their website to hear about the story. Um, and I'm not even saying that this this movement is just IHOP, but IHOP really helped spearhead um, this movement. And, you know, what we've seen is we've seen the proliferation of houses of prayer all over the world. You know, I remember some years ago, I, I moved to Dallas for a year and I found, you know, a leader there who was leading a house of prayer. And I was like, man, it's so great that you guys have a house of prayer here. I was doing house of prayer stuff um, in California. And he's like, oh, well, actually, you know, we're not the only house of prayer. I was like, oh, there's more. He's like, yeah, there's over 30 houses of prayer in Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> this was back in the, um, you know, the mid 2000s or something like that. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. This was more like 2013, 2014. Um, and I remember I was blown away by that. He's like, he told me there were over 30 houses of prayer in Dallas. And I, I was blown away. But yeah, that's because what's amazing about this move is that it's not like, you know, Mike Bickle or the help leaders have this agenda to start houses of prayer everywhere and they're sending out teams to do it and they're planting all these IHOPs. That's not how it's happening. It's people are getting a burden from the Lord on their own to start these things. And they look at IHOP as, you know, pioneers. Um, but if you go to any of these houses of prayer, they all have their own unique DNA. 
right? They all emphasize slightly different things, um, but there is the shared value, right? And some of these values, I think, are really essential um, to the church, right? And one of the first ones is, is loving the Lord with all of your heart, right? It, bringing the first commandment back to the first place of the church, right? And this is core House of Prayer DNA, right? We're going to minister to the Lord. Ministering to the Lord is going to take precedence over ministering to people. And um, I just say, as a church leader, as a pastor, somebody who's been pastoring a local church for over a decade, I can tell you that this, to me, seems like one of the most important corrections for the local church. Because in the local church, we get so focused on ministering to people and hearing what people need, hearing what they're struggling with, what they want, right? And we feel that constant pressure as pastors to give people what they want and to hear what they need. And we become overwhelmed by there's so many needs. And what gets lost is actually hearing the Lord. <laughs> it sounds, it sounds, you know, somewhat obvious, but the truth is that local churches are primarily led by pastors and teachers. Okay. And, um, th the problem with that is that, you know, the, the fivefold anointing that focuses on hearing the Lord is the prophetic anointing, right? And the apostolic. Okay. The apostle, one of the, the, the main, um, anointings of the apostle is to get mission, right? A mission from the Lord. And the prophet hears from the Lord, hears directions from the Lord, and confirms, you know, um, the apostolic mandate. And there's a there's a dynamic there. But what we've seen in the local church is that local churches tend to be led by pastors and teachers. And um, there's in in many cases the the office of prophet and apostle are really despised. And that's why you have such a low um, value for prophecy. And a low value for mission in many churches, okay? And, um, and to be clear, I'm not trying to hammer the church, um, the local church. I love the local church. But I'm saying that this is a very common weakness. And um, what happens is local churches, in my opinion, have a tendency to focus so much on people's wants and needs that they they lose track of what is God actually saying and what does he want to accomplish and what's he doing. And the, the great trap that local churches fall into is they become humanistic, right? So they become reliant on human power and they become, you know, they don't know what God's saying. And, and that's why you really have to go outside of the local church to find more prophetic ministries often. Now, you know, to be clear, this is, I'm speaking generalities. There are local churches led by prophets. Okay. Um, those are usually weird churches, <laughs> right? They're weird churches and they usually struggle with doctrine and caring for people, right? Like, but that's, this is the nature of the fivefold ministry, right? That like churches tend to be led by one of the fivefold ministry um, leaders. And unless they really have a kingdom vision, which is the, actually the next thing I'm going to talk about, then what happens is they, they're really good in their area of anointing, but they really lack in the other fivefold um, anointings. Okay, and they get unbalanced. But like I said, most local churches are led by pastors and teachers. And then really you have to go to parachurch ministries. To, and the parachurch ministries tend to be led by more apostles and prophets. Because they, they don't want to be caring for people. <laughs> you know, like they, they don't want to be caring for, for too many people. That's not where their strength is. Their strength is really doing the mission of what they feel like God has called them to do. And um, so I say that, that um, I see movements like the House of Prayer movement. Um, I feel like it's essential, and what I'm looking for is it being integrated with the local church, okay? And um, I look at ministries like Upper Room, 
Okay, Upper Room, I feel like, is a type of prototype where they're really pioneering this this blending of the local church and the House of Prayer movement. And, and to be clear, I don't feel like Upper Room's model, um, every church has to copy that exact model, per se, but just the blending of those two elements, I think, are, is really important. And um, if you're not familiar with Upper Room, um, they do, um, you know, they have houses of prayer in their church, right? So they do a morning set, uh, afternoon set and an evening set. At least the Dallas campus does. Um, I, I assume I'm, I'm not sure what the the Denver campus is doing. If they're doing all three sets, you really you know you can only do as many sets as you have leaders to lead those sets, right? So, um, but I know that that's what they're trying to build towards. But basically, an integrated model where the the local church is housing a house of prayer. Okay, and you know I think if we look at the Korean church. I've said for a long time, I think the strength of the Korean church, the secret ingredient of the Korean church has been morning prayer, right? Korean church churches have had a, a house of prayer and hosted a house of prayer. And I think that's why they've been so effective in the past generation. And one of the reasons why the Korean church is, is, is dying is because they're losing that value for the house of prayer. Okay. So I think the house of prayer is one of the essential ingredients um, for this new move of God that he's doing in our generation, okay? And um, as somebody who has led, you know, local church and house of prayer stuff, I will say that I think that there's a, there's a real importance to have both of what I call a contending and an abiding house of prayer as being part of this, okay? And what I mean by that is that many houses of prayer will focus more on what I call abiding or resting, and... Um, and that's where we're just going to sing worship songs to the Lord. We're going to have lots of devotional sets where we just, you know, enjoy God's presence. And that's beautiful. I, I love that stuff, okay? Um, but I think you need a balance with abiding and contending, which is more contending intercession, right? Where we are interceding and really praying for the purposes of God. And um, I think you need both, okay? Um, I think when you f focus too much on one or the other, uh, from my perspective, it tends to get unbalanced, right? And I've seen other ministries where they really just focus on the contending part, and I think it, it can get unbalanced like that. You need, you need both. You need the abiding and the resting in God's presence, just loving his presence, and you need the contending where we are, you know, we're interceding for the things uh, on God's heart, you know, and, you know, we tend to be louder in that type of intercession and stuff like that, okay? <clears throat> okay. That I think is the first element. What that's going to do is, I think it's going to it's going to uh, fix one of the main problems in the church body, which is a tendency towards humanism. Okay, a tendency towards relying on human power, volunteers, burning out volunteers on human money, right? Like building gigantic buildings, you know, that barely get used, and and really wasting the resources, and always thinking in terms of we just need more money. If only we had more money, we could accomplish. The truth is, we don't need we don't need money. Okay, I'm not saying that money is 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 uh, has no place, but money tends to be way overemphasized um, the more humanistic we get. Okay, we don't need more money; we need the power of God. All right, it's only when we don't have the power and the and the presence and the anointing of the Lord that we start to rely on things like money and marketing and all this kind of stuff. And again, I'm not saying there's no place for that. I'm just saying the general tendency in the church is those things tend to be way overemphasized because we don't know how to get the, the supernatural things that we need. Okay. At least from my perspective. Okay. So the house of prayer element, I think is really important. What it does is it refocuses, it calls every single member of the church to prioritize intimacy with the Lord. 
okay? Prioritize intimacy with the Lord to, to embrace an identity as a worshiper and an intercessor, okay? I think all believers are called to be worshipers and intercessors, okay? Um, and what that does is it, it as we connect with the Lord in intimacy and ministering to his heart, then he pours out grace on us. He pours out blessing on us. And this is what the church needs so badly is to put the first thing first, right? Loving the Lord with all of our heart, our mind, and our soul. I think it's going to fix one of the the big problems in the church, which is becoming more human-centric. And also that opens up the door for the religious spirit. And, um, you know, all the, the religious spirit in terms of the forms of holiness, the things that look like holiness, but really aren't right. The traditions of man that, um, you know, that, that become such a source of corruption in the church. Okay. And again, I always have to clarify, I'm talking about extremes here, but these, these types of extremes are common. I'm not saying all traditions are bad. A lot of traditions are, are, are good and healthy, but, um, it's very common in churches to um, have traditions become so important at the expense of, of really seeing what the Lord is doing or what he's asking us to do in our generation, okay? All right, so that's the number one element, the house of prayer, okay? The number two element is what I call a, a, a kingdom vision, a kingdom vision, okay? And this um, uh, encapsulates two main components. Number one is unity in the church, and I, I alluded to it a little bit earlier, but it's this idea that my church and my ministry are not that important, okay? My church and my ministry are not that important, right? Like, for leaders in the church, our tendency is to feel like we're doing the most important thing in the church. <laughs> you know, like all what we're about is 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 so important. And how's God going to save America? Well, He's going to, you know, you know, I'm I'm, I'm exaggerating this a little bit, but He's going to, you know, bless our ministry and send tons of people our way, and we're going to build, you know franchises everywhere and you know and but the truth is no what you're doing is not that important in the great scheme of things okay like it's not about what ever what each individual ministry or church is doing it's about the unity and the holiness that we can have that will cause god to pour out his spirit on us collectively all right what we need is we need the outpouring of the spirit and the lord has certain restrictions to how he pours out his spirit Unity and holiness are essential ingredients to see the outpouring of the Spirit. And you're going to see that over and over again in Scripture, right? In the early church, what you saw is that they had such a, a great holiness that when Ananias and Sapphira, this Acts chapter 5, when they sinned, um, there was immediate judgment on that sin because that level of holiness had to be maintained to, to host that level of anointing and outpouring of the Spirit, okay? And that's, you know, that's the part... That, is, that can be kind of scary for us, um, but you you have to have those things and move God. And you're going to see that paralleled in the times of Joshua when Joshua is um, having the conquest of the promised land. Same thing. Great supernatural power and grace. God is with them. And because of that, what happens when Achan sins, when Achan steals some of the treasure from um, Jericho, right? Immediate judgment. Immediate judgment. Why? Because God won't pour out supernatural power on them when they go out to fight the next city. AI, right? So there has to be repentance, clean, clean, like spiritual cleanness, okay? And then that grace is restored to them to function at a very high level of anointing, okay? And that dynamic is 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 all part of this, right? If we want an outpouring of the Spirit, then we need unity and we need holiness, okay? And I forgot to mention this, but 
we're talking about the house of prayer, it, this is a very important co- uh, part of holiness. A lot of times holiness gets preached as stop doing bad things. Okay, or repent for doing bad things. And things that's that's important. That's an important aspect of the holiness message. Okay, is repentance. But that's not the most important part of the holiness message in my opinion. Okay? The most important part of the holiness message is learn to fellowship and become fascinated with intimacy with God. All right, that is the true holiness message. Because if you just tell people stop doing bad things, you know, stop doing this evil thing, stop doing this evil thing, stop doing this bad thing, but they don't replace it with something that's better, <laughs> you know, like then what happens is it just becomes a lot of failure because you're just constantly saying, no, stop doing this bad thing, stop. And then and then you get down on yourself and you feel condemned because you can't stop doing bad things. But the secret to not doing bad things is to become fascinated with the good stuff, right? And that's the, the emphasis on holiness and fellowshipping with the Lord, right, in an intimate way and, and giving a, a, a model for how that's done, right? That And that's all part that is largely missing from the church. So if you just emphasize, you know, how we need to refrain from sin and repent of sin, but we don't teach people how to intimately fellowship with the Lord, it doesn't work. And that's a huge part of what the, the House of Prayer movement is, is it's showing people how to, to stay in, in close, intimate fellowship with the Lord, right? how to linger in the presence, how to appreciate and, and, and get into the presence, how to nurture the presence of the Lord in your life. All of that is part of that movement. And that is, is in my opinion, the most important thing if we're going to have a real holiness movement. Okay, you got to have that. Okay, so getting back to the, the second criteria, which is this kingdom vision, right? It's recognizing w- my ministry is, is is not that important. It's the collective. It's how's the body of Christ doing? Do we have the holiness and the unity to be able to to carry a move of God? All right. And um, this idea of, of being more concerned with the body of Christ than I'm even concerned for my own ministry, I think is so important. Because what we have today is, is there's so much competition amongst churches. There's so much jealousy and insecurity. And look, as a pastor, I understand all that kind of stuff, okay? I really do. Like, it's hard when you have somebody that says, hey, I, I'm going to go to another church, you know? Like, as a pastor, as a local pastor, it's hard. You can feel a sense of rejection. Like, oh, they don't want you as their spiritual leader. They want another spiritual leader. And I know so many pastors, like, that are real. They, we really struggle with that type of stuff, right? Um but this is the thing, it's only because we're so divided. It's because we're so divided, right? I, I mentioned earlier what you generally tend to have happen at, at, at churches is you've got, like, say, a pastor, you know, leading a church, and that pastor, his his what he's good at, you know, is, is uh, you know, protecting the flock, caring for them, feeding them, but he's not so great at doctrine, per se. He's not so great at prophecy. He's not so great at missions. He's not so great at evangelism, right? And so... What happens, like, um, the church has real weaknesses. And the pastor, you know, I know know so many pastors, they're trying to be great in all of those areas. (laughs) And I always say that that is an impossible job, okay? It is impossible for a pastor to meet the desires of everything that the people in his congregation want. Because that's an impossible job. You have to be a great public speaker, a great counselor, a great business leader. It's like you have to wear so many hats to be the perfect pastor. It's absolutely impossible, okay? The secret is not to try and be the ultimate minister. The secret is to be rightly connected and unified to the rest of the body so that other ministers are able to pour their grace into the people that you're pastoring. And the problem is that's so hard because the body is so divided right now. Okay, it's so hard because the body's so divided. 
The way it should work is that we're all on the same team. Our ministries are cooperating together. Our churches are cooperating together, right? Such that um, all the different graces of the fivefold ministry are being poured out on all the people in, in various churches. And there's no sense of competition with one another, but cooperation, okay? And um, we're a long ways away from that. Um, but that is where we have to move towards, right? We've got to cooperate with one another, right? Um, we've got to be one body and not feel threatened by one another. Um, but there's so many things that come in, like differences in theology, differences in practice. I always try to emphasize these are minor, okay? Now, there is real heresy out there. I'm not trying to say there's not. And I, I have, have said that, yeah, we do need to draw the lines when we're talking about heresy. But man, I hear people call things heresy all the time that are so small, right? Like when people are accusing, you know, like Bill Johnson of being a heretic, I, it really grieves my heart. Okay. It really grieves my heart. And it's not, obviously it's, it's everyone, right? It's like people are accusing John MacArthur of being a heretic. People are accusing all the people of, you know, being ultra religious. And, and the thing is they're, they, in many cases, they're pointing out real weaknesses, but that's the, that's the truth of the body. We all have weaknesses. Okay. Every church, every ministry, if we analyze it, is going to have weaknesses. It's designed that way by God. Right? It's designed that way by God. That's exactly Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 12 when he's saying that the eye cannot say to the foot, I don't need you. The whole point is that the eye can't be the foot. Right? We need one another and we have to cooperate. And rather than, you know, tear each other down, we have to celebrate our differences and be like, hey, like, they're so good at this type of ministry. I'm so thankful for their influence in the body of Christ. And I want them to minister to my people. Right. Because that's the only way that we're going to grow up. And, you know, if, if we're looking at this, this criteria of kingdom vision, the, the, the best scripture in my mind that encapsulates it is, is Ephesians 4. All right. Ephesians 4, Paul talks about how Christ gave gifts to the church. And these gifts are the apostles, the prophets, the pastors, the evangelists, and the teachers. Okay. And it's their job to equip the saints for the work of service so that each part each part of the body does its part, and in that way we grow into maturity to rightly fit him who is the head, that is Christ. Meaning, the only way the church is going to be mature is if the fivefold ministers are equipping the saints so that the saints become effective ministers themselves. And then the saints are doing the lion's share of the ministry. And this is the part that is, is so backwards in 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 most of the church today where you have the professional ministers doing the vast majority of the ministry and that we have what's called i uh, i call a church-based vision right where we're saying hey bring the lost to church you know volunteer at church serve at church tithe to the church and help me the pastor do all the ministry in the church something like that right and what happens is we turn all of the saints of the church into spectators where they're watching, they learn how to become hearers of the word, right? But they don't know how to do the word because they're not called as pastors. They're not called as professional ministers, but we're basically turning them into, you know, worse versions of us as pastors. Okay. And, um, I'm, I'm not meaning to say this in an accusatory manner because this is something that I struggle with and wrestle, wrestle with all the time as a pastor is how can I equip the saints to be who they are called to be? And this idea of building the kingdom in such a way that we're giving the saints a vision for how they can be effective ministers outside of the church building. This is something we still really need to grow in. But leaders that have that kind of humility where they're not trying to turn their people into pawns to build their church organizations, 
Okay, the, the, this is this is this is we're not trying to build great church organizations. Okay, great church organizations suck. All right, we have great church organizations. We've got huge churches with huge buildings. I, when I lived in California, I lived right next to the Crystal Cathedral. All right, amazing building. All right, amazing building. If you've never seen this thing, you, you should look it up online. It's it's a phenomenal building. Okay, it cost a lot of money to build that thing, and you know what happened? It was built with a radio ministry. You know, I forget the name of the guy, but he had a, a one of the first people that had a national radio Christian ministry. So successful, he built this incredible building for his church, and then. Um, you know, now it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't belong to him anymore, right? Like, I think he passed it down to his son, and then the ministry started doing really poorly, and and the church died, and I think it was sold off to the Catholics, you know, and the, and the Catholic Church owns that beautiful building now. And it's just like, we're not trying to build, you know, amazing buildings and and grand organizations, okay? And and to be clear, I don't have a problem with with large organizations per se, I have a problem when building a large organization is the focus of the ministry. Okay, that uh, no, our calling is to build great people. Okay, which brings me to my third criteria, which is fathering. All right, spiritual fathering. Paul, you know, said that you have ten thousand teachers but few fathers, and the fathering element is so essential and vital. Okay, and I say this, I want to say this in humility too, because this is something where I have been really seeking the Lord to grow in this whole past season of my life is, Lord, how can I grow as a spiritual father? Because, yeah, the ten, the tendency for us as, you know, as disciples is just to, hey, we're going to give a ton of teachings. And this is how we do in the West, just teachings, 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 teachings. And man, people are awash with teachings. Okay, there's way too many teachings out there, especially with the internet now. There's a million podcasts. There's a million sermons online. There's a million books. There's way too much information. We don't need more information. We need people that have the ability to actually care for people, right? Like, I'm always blown away by one of the stories of, um, you know, one of the mentors in my life who, when he was, um, you know, a, a minister, he, he did prison ministry. He led a young prisoner to the Lord. Um, and, um, he visited that prisoner every year for his birthday for over 30 years. He visited him in prison. That's to me, there, there's something so beautiful about that. Cause that's real fathering, right? That's like that. He wasn't doing that to build his organization, right? He was doing that because he really cared for that young man in prison who became an old man, right? And that there's something so beautiful and powerful about that, that, um, I remember when I heard that, so I heard that story from the prisoner, right? Um, you know, he, he got out of prison and he shared his testimony with me and I was, I was so touched by that because that's a picture to me of real fathering. And, and I said, Lord, I want to be able to love people like that. Right. And, um, and there, man, there's such a need for that desire, right? Like I understand, like, you know, we as Christians, we always we want to listen to like the best speakers. <laughs> you know? like we want to listen to the best speakers all the time. And the best speakers have the biggest ministries and the biggest churches. But you know, like I, Paul, Paul says this, right? You know, to the Corinthian church, you know, it, it seems like people are accusing him of not being impressive in person. <laughs> you know? And he says, and he's like, yeah, maybe I'm not so impressive in person, you know, um, but he says the kingdom of God is not is not found in words, but in power, right? And I'll test these so-called, 
you know, apostles and leaders, right? And I won't be testing their words. I'm going to test their power, okay? And it just seems to me like we're judging by that same type of immature criteria, okay? We're, you know, we look at a leader's speaking gift, and we're so drawn to that. And and I understand, like, there's something very compelling about a great speaker, all right? But that's not what God considers great. I'm just convinced it, it's not our eloquence, all right? And as, as leaders, we can't have this, you know, this goal, I want to become the greatest speaker, the most eloquent speaker, right? It, it, it's not necessarily that that's an evil goal. It's just there's things that are so much more valuable than that, all right? And I think part of this new DNA is that there would be a generation of leaders that would really long to carry the qualities that God himself values. And I think one of them is this fathering component, right? That would really uh, have a heart to grow as leaders that truly care for people beyond what builds our ministries, right? But become caring people, loving people, right? Um and this is, you know, one of my ambitions as a leader is to become a, a strong spiritual father, a great spiritual father, right? And, um, and and that's a much harder journey because to learn to care for people means that you have to face all the things that keep people from caring for people, face all the hard, the, the rejection, face the betrayals, face all that, and learn to love people through it. Right, and that's a difficult process. Nobody wants to go through that process, <laughs> right? But if we're going to become true fathers, right? And, and and when I say father, I, I'm also meaning mothers. Okay, I'm not trying to, you know, um, disqualify all the the women out there. Um, parents, okay, spiritual parents. Um, th there's something that's so valuable that, and I think you know the leaders that God wants to raise up in this next season, okay, are leaders that learn what it means to love people right? To lay down their life for others, to become the servant of all, right? They're not so concerned with building their name, but are concerned with building up great people. And when I look at Jesus, that is his model of discipleship. Jesus was not just giving people a lot of lessons, although obviously he did, okay? He gave people a lot of lessons. But what he was doing with his disciples, he was teaching them his way of life, right? They were following around, seeing how he lived, Okay, and he was relationally devoted to them, and he wasn't like trying to build, you know, Jesus Church, right? Like, I mean, at one point it seems like he had the biggest church following in the region, and that's the point where he purposefully offends that entire crowd. You know, this is John chapter six, where he starts preaching to them about, you know, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and he does not explain what he means by that, and so they're all debating: is this guy like talking about cannibalism, like, you know? And and he offends many people, and many people stop following him at that time. You know that you'll never see that type of thing happen today. <laughs> you know, like, you know, or if you did, you know, the leader would be like, I failed, right? Like my ministry went from, you know, I had, you know, twenty thousand people, and ministry went to, you know, a dozen, a couple dozen. I must have failed somewhere, right? I know I would feel that way. <laughs> Like, I was like, God, I must have failed here, right? But that's exactly what Jesus did, right? And that's exactly what happened to John the Baptist too, right? When his disciples were like, John, all, all of our followers are going to him. And he said, he must increase and I must decrease. Where are the leaders that have that type of maturity and discernment? 
And I'll, I, I say that because I don't. I wish I did. I'm praying, God, give me that kind of maturity and discernment that I would know when it's my time to grow and when it's my time to die. <laughs> right? And and I'd be okay with that. Right? And I know, no, this is what the Lord is asking for. Right? But th- this is what I mean. Like, we're building, we've been building so much according to human standards that we don't know the standards that God uses. Okay? But I'm convinced that this fathering element is an essential ingredient, okay? Will we become true fathers and mothers? And this is, you know, this is not just for pastors. I I have to make this really clear. I'm talking about all the leaders in the church. Imagine if all the elders, if all the deacons were true spiritual mothers and fathers, right? Able to care for people in their immaturity, right? And love them as they are, even in all their brokenness, right? I... Every time I hear about churches, you know, like being so unhealthy and toxic and it just grieves my heart because that's the opposite of what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be really the safest places in the world. And to be clear, I'm not talking about so safe that you never hear anything that offends you. Okay. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay. Jesus offended tons of people. But what I am saying is that Jesus could walk around with 12 apostles who, 12 disciples who were obviously immature in many ways, right? They loved him and they felt loved by him, right? They felt accepted by him despite all of their weaknesses. And that's really how it's supposed to be in the church, okay? So the fathering is an important aspect of this. Um, And then those are the three that I'm most sure about, okay? Those three elements I think are essential ingredients of this wineskin, okay? Now, some of the others, I feel like I feel a burn for it. I'm not sure if they're really supposed to be part of this. Um, the anti-Marxist, anti-humanist aspect. Obviously, you know, in Righteous Remnant, we spent a lot of time um, talking about this because 2020, I felt like, was the high watermark. And that's, you know, when we were birthed as a ministry. Um, and that, you know, that was like the, the BLM, Black Lives Matter movement was going crazy. And, you know, and, and if you're living in New York and, and California and parts like this, I'm sure that you still are dealing with a lot of this kind of stuff. I do think we've reached um, the high watermark, I think was 2020. And I think we are pushing back, back more against this. But um, I, I, I just do think that um, we're going to be dealing with these ideologies, humanism, Marxism. Marxism is a, is a type of humanism. We're going to be dealing with these ideologies in our generation, and um, leaders in this generation have to understand these ideologies and understand the differences between a biblical worldview and biblical values and these humanistic Marxist ones, because Marxism really is a counterfeit, okay? It's a counterfeit of what God is doing, okay? It's, you know, the kingdom is really about restoration. God will restore all things, okay? All those who have been oppressed in, in history and have done what's right will be greatly rewarded, Okay, he does make all things beautiful in his time, but Marxism is all about using human power to to right historic wrongs. Okay, and what that does is it makes it more wrong. Okay, when you embrace bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness and jealousy and all these types of things that Marxism feeds off of and relies on, what you end up producing is something far worse than the ways that you were oppressed in your life, okay? And that is that is the history of Marxist movements, okay? And um, it's going to be important for the church leaders to understand um, this ideology and how it works because we're going to be facing more of it, okay? We are going to be facing more of it. My concern is as we go in the future, I think we're going to be pushing back from left-wing Marxism. I am concerned about right-wing Marxism, okay? That's, you know, you know when we're talking about fascism, 
okay, that is really what we're talking about. It's it's Marxism, right wing Marxism. Like Nazism was Marxism. It was a national socialism. It was a different brand of Marxism, a different type of Marxism. And you really have to understand the 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 roots of it, right? The the roots, understanding bitterness, right? Understanding resentment. Okay. And that's why I always, you know, when we're talking about Marxism, the antidote to Marxism is gratitude, is thankfulness, is forgiveness, right? And these are truths that, you know, the church really should be preaching, like trusting in the sovereignty of the Lord. He is the great judge who will make all things right in his time. There's no way in which we can be oppressed and suffer now and and not be rewarded for it if we'll go through it in faith, right? Like, blessed are you when you're slandered and persecuted, okay? And I understand it's very difficult to go through these things. I'm not trying to minimize how difficult it is to go through all these things. But what I'm saying is the message of the church should not be, you know, well, I don't want to, <laughs> if I go down this line, we'll jump into a whole thing on Marxism. I won't do that again, okay? I just want to point it out. All right. And um, and the last thing is this idea of inheritance. And this one has really been burdening my heart. Um, um, I, I've been you know, working primarily in the Korean church for this past season of my life. And man, I have been so burdened with this idea of a Korean inheritance. Okay. But I think that this is important for the entire body of Christ. All right. And this is, this is, um, recognizing what God has done in the past, honoring what God has done in the past. Okay. Honoring the moves of God for our past. And, you know, even the, the traditions, um, that have been passed down, and um, rightly honoring them and incorporating them into your spiritual DNA, okay? And the thing is, there's a, there's a trick to this, where you have to honor the moves of God from the past, but you cannot have allegiance to the forms of it. And what I mean by that is there is a tendency um, for us to honor the forms of the moves of the past, okay? Meaning the traditions, the the manifestations, right? And what happens is when we become too, um, when, when we honor the form of how God moves rather than the substance, the genuine substance, then what happens is we resist what God is doing in our generation, the new thing that God's doing. Because God enjoys he 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 manifests himself in new ways the moves of god differ from one another because they really do test us do we know him can we recognize him even when he comes in a different form all right and that's true discernment and it's hard it's the reason why so many of the leaders in jesus day rejected jesus because they were beholden to their traditions and that those were traditions were good traditions in the sense that they were birthed from a move of god you know i i try and help people understand this. the pharisee movement was not a bad movement it was a it was a glorious God-ordained movement, I believe, that was all about honoring the law of Moses in that generation, but because of the religiousness and because they uh, they allowed um, so much corruption, that they, they fell in love with the traditions of the movement, um, and they could not recognize God when he came in a different form, okay? So I believe that God is looking for leaders that will honor the moves of God in the past and and really seeking for a double portion of that inheritance, okay? Um, because the way I understand, you know, to work is that when God moves on the earth, he's, he, he doesn't want to just have a temporary blessing. He's really trying to restore the church, okay, to a place of, of maturity for the body. And so what we have to do is we have to know the moves of God from our past and how that they have influenced us and affect us. And we have to honor those leaders and love them and then seek a double portion anointing. 
okay? Because we don't want what God did in the past to be forgotten, right? We want it to be remembered and honored um, going on forever. And whatever God is going to do in the future is not going to contradict something that he did in the past. He might, there might be a, a, a shift of emphasis on a particular truth or something like that, but anything that God has emphasized in a move of God in the past, he wants it to continue to be honored forever. Okay, that's my understanding. And so I believe that the leaders that God wants to raise up need to be able to honor the moves of the past and honor the leaders of the past and, and, and love them and cover their shame, right? Because it's easy. Whenever we look back at past movements, it's easy for us to point out everything that was wrong with it, right? And, um, you know, and disparage it. And, and, and just being real, like as a leader in the Korean church, I've, I've dealt with my share of weaknesses in the Korean church. And I know many leaders who have been in the Korean church would be like, oh man, there's, there's so much control in the Korean church. There's so much, you know, religiousness. There's so much fakery. There's, you know, there's very little fathering. And all of that is, is, is true. But we have to be able to look back and say, but there's so many amazing things about the Korean church. There's such a, there's, there's so many amazing things that these leaders have done and we have to honor them and then cover their shame and say, yeah, even though there are these weaknesses, right? And we don't want to carry on those weaknesses that we see in our churches and our movements and our ministries. Um, but we're going to cover them. We're not, we're not going to say, we're not going to try and divorce them. Right. But we're going to try and cover them and honor them. And, you know, there's, there's this thing in Korean culture where, you know, the, the parents expect their kids to care for them in their old age. And I don't know that there's just something about that that's been speaking to me because that's actually a biblical principle. Okay. That is a biblical principle. When, um, you know, the, the, the 10 commandments says, honor your father and your mother, that it may go well with you and you may have long life. Um, you know, the Jewish rabbis understood that to mean that you care for them in their old age. All right. And I, I think that's backed up by what Jesus said, you know, when he said, you know, if you declare all of your money, you know, dedicated to God, then you don't need to care for your parents anymore. And he was rebuking them because that that violated the spirit of the command, right? Which to honor your mother and your father was to care for them in their old age. That was a that was an essential component of that. And I feel like in the same way that we uh, we can't just be about, hey, we're going to go do our own thing. And forget those guys, they're they're all messed up. It can't be like that. There's got to be something where we're like, no, we're going to care for them. We're going to honor the ways that they sowed into our lives and blessed us and, you know, and, and passed down so many things. If they didn't done that, we would not be where we are today. And that's to be this thing where we love, you know, we love them and honor them and care for them in the ways that we can. And, um... I think that's really important, and, I, and obviously I'm, I'm talking about this, you know, from the, a, a Korean perspective, but I think this is true not just for the Korean church, it's true for all aspects, right? If, if you came from a Methodist background, there, there has to be something where you honor the Methodist church, and you love the Methodist church, and you honor the Wesleys and everything that they, you know, taught, and you, you know, and, and you can recognize the real weaknesses of the movement, that's fine, right? But you're covering that weakness, okay? You're not trying to expose them or tell people how terrible it is, but you're trying to say, like, no, there's something that's so valuable and, and, and wonderful here. And we're going to honor that, and we're going to honor the leaders um, that carried that message. Okay, and that's true. Like for for whatever movement you're from, whether it's from Baptist, baptism, Baptist movement, or you know the Latino Church, or whatever it might be, let's carry the inheritance. Let's grab the inheritance and hold on to it and ask for a double portion. And I believe that God wants to pour out a double portion anointing on those who will honor the inheritance of the past. Okay. 
So those are the five things that I really feel. Obviously, I, th I feel very strongly about the first three. Um, the last two, I'm not sure that that's going to be for everyone. I definitely feel like it's, it's, it's for me, um, but it might be. It might be for everyone. So I would just encourage you as a as a leader, um, I just assume if you're listening to this podcast, then there <laughs> you have to have some leadership on you because otherwise you're not going to care about anything that I, I'm talking about. Um, I would encourage you to pray into these things and ask the Lord for grace in all of these areas to carry heart and anointing for the house of prayer, right? To learn to love the presence of the Lord and to carry and to help build that wherever you are, right? To carry a kingdom vision, not to be so concerned with just your ministry, your church, your small group, whatever it might be. Although obviously I, I, I do want you to steward that well, but to have a larger concern for the body of Christ and that God would make us one, right? They would unify the body and give us true holiness, right? And so that he could pour out his spirit and use us in our generation, right? And that there would be, um, you know, heart for fathering, right? That we would honor spiritual fathers and mothers and we would seek to become spiritual fathers and mothers, right? To have that kind of love and to not just be, you know, great leaders, although, you know, we want to be great leaders, but to be more than that, to be more than great teachers, right? To be more than great worship leaders or Bible study leaders or whatever whatever area of, of ministry that we engage in, um, to be able to love people, right? Like the Lord does, right? And have that type of long-term commitment to people, all right? Um, and then, you know, to be able to understand, you know, the ideologies that contend with the kingdom of God in our culture, that's, you know, that's humanism, that's Marxism. Um, in, in other parts of the world, it's, you know, Buddhism and Islam, right? Um, to understand them and understand how they differ from the kingdom and from the Bible and from biblical values, and then lastly, the inheritance part that we would honor the moves of God in the past and that we would seek a double portion, not to forget what God has done in the past, but to honor it and carry it on in our generation. Okay, I hope that makes sense. Um, Father, I pray, Lord God, for this DNA. Lord, I pray that you'd raise up leaders that carry this DNA, Lord, that carry this wineskin, Lord, make us into a people that can carry what you want to do in this next generation, Lord God. We pray for that grace in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.